I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Thanks for listening to the Not A Diving podcast. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our private Discord server, sign up at patreon.com slash scuba official. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Right, Happy New Year. We had a couple of weeks off, but we are back, back on schedule. So you'll have noticed from that new updated intro that we now have ads on the show. So if you don't want to hear ads, then, well, I've already told you what to do. You need to go over to patreon.com slash scuba official and become a subscriber. You can do that for as little as four US dollars a month or three pounds fifty GBP. And um, yeah, no more ads. And you also get other stuff for that as well. There's a higher tier, which also enables you to get all the music that we release on Hot Flush Recordings and affiliated labels ahead of time and in high quality download formats. So if you haven't done that already, which you haven't because you're listening to this version of the feed, that would be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? A good way to start 2024, right? Yeah, that would be good. So yeah, I hope you had a good break. I hope you had a good holiday period. I have been enjoying myself, my two weeks off from doing anything. I kind of worked through Christmas actually pretty much and then played out on New Year's Eve, which was really fun in London at Studio 338. That was a really, really fun night actually. I had a lot of fun playing some uh, festive tunes, shall we say. Yeah, lots of fun. Unfortunately, now I've got a nasty bout of sciatica, so I'm currently standing up at a standing workstation I've constructed for myself in my studio because I can't sit down for more than a few seconds at a time without getting stabbing pains up and down my right leg. That's not good. That is not a good start to the year for me, actually. This is a kind of long, ongoing complaint for me, (laughs) but it's a particularly bad one. So yeah, that sucks. But you know, it's not slowing me down. It's not stopping me from recording episodes 
of the show and we are kicking off episode 101 with none other than DJ Paulette. Yeah, she's got a book out. Well, it's coming out in a couple weeks time actually called Welcome to the Club. I've been reading it and it's great to have her on to talk about some of the stuff that's in it. I say some of the stuff because there's a lot of stuff in the book. There's 200 pages, but it could be a thousand pages quite easily. It must have been challenging to knock it down to something which I guess the publishers wanted to limit it to. But yeah, we are lucky to have her here to dig into some of the uh, some of the juicy topics in there and also some of the topics she doesn't cover in the book too. So yeah, great, good stuff, good stuff. Paulette is an actual legend of the scene at this point, I think it's fair to say. She was a resident at Hacienda, the legendary Hacienda in Manchester in the early 90s and has gone on just to do all kinds of different stuff as a DJ, as an A&R, also as an extremely successful press agent. She did the PR for the Mercury Music Prize winning Ronnie Sy's album in 1997, amongst loads of other things on Mercury Records and Manifesto and other stuff too, various seminal labels. And she spent a long time in Paris really ascended the electronic music scene in France. So yeah, lots to talk about and great to have her on. Okay, I've already mentioned Patreon. You can join up to the Discord server if you want to talk about the show, talk about anything. There is a private area of that for supporters of the show. But, you know, if you're just um, a, well, a non-supporting listener, which is absolutely fine, by the way, it's totally fine. You can join the Discord server at hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. The other thing you can do to support the show other than, you know, support it directly on Patreon is follow us on whatever platform you're listening to this on leave us a review hit the five star button on the ratings thing and yeah all that kind of stuff there's also a Spotify playlist link in the show notes of that playlist as well as all the other pertinent stuff okay I've been going on for too long without further delay here is DJ Paulette Paulette, welcome to the show. How's it going? Uh, very well, thank you. And I am very happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a while, actually. Good. Yeah, so have I. So have I. So um, you've got a book coming out. It's coming out soon, right? I'm just looking at the uh, advanced copy of it now, and it says publication date 23rd of January 2024. Is that still the date? Yes, that's correct. That is very, very correct. And I am, I mean, it feels like it's been it's taken ages for this book to come out <laughs> when did you start writing it uh um i started in earnest in i uh, i guess it would have been february 22 okay right yeah a couple of years then it was well the book writing process as i have discovered is very long so First of all, it was the submission process. The yeah submission process, which went from April twenty one to um, December twenty one, when I was given the commission, and then when I was given the commission, I had to say how long I thought it was going to take me to write the book and give them a deadline for returning the copy. And at the time, we were kind of in and out of lockdown, so I thought. Oh, I'll have loads of time to write. So, yeah, let's just do it in a year. And then, you know, November came, the end of November 20... 
like 21 came and we came out of lockdown. They let everything open up. And there was that will it, won't it, New Year's Eve moment for yep. 21 into 22. But it happened. And then it was like all hell broke loose because I went back to work. I was straight back to work. I was DJing all over the place every weekend, um, up and down the country, blah, blah, blah. What You know, one of these lucky people that managed to get back to work quite quickly. Um, so the book was written on trains, off trains, in hotel rooms, in oh, yeah. airport waiting lounges. I took my laptop with me everywhere I went. When I wasn't writing on my laptop, I was writing on my phone in notes, putting messages through, doing voice notes, all, all sorts of stuff. And then for the, you know, and then I realised how ambitious a project it was because I was, um, you know, I was, interviewing like maybe 50 people for the book and it was like this is gonna take ages <laughs> yeah that's that's a lot of work in itself and and it was getting people to lock into you know agree to doing interviews and then getting our schedules to match so that we could do the interviews and 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 then I was realizing exactly how ambitious the project was because it was like herding cats you know <laughs> you can't get these people together you, you know when we were in lockdown it would have been really easy to do it because everyone was at home you know and as soon as we came out of lockdown everyone went back to work and everyone was suddenly busy and everyone was traveling and it was harder to tie people down and suddenly it was like oh my god am I even gonna get this even gonna start to write this and it was around May and I'd been writing bits and pieces and writing notes down and this, that, and the other, and it got to May, and my friend Camilla said, have you started writing it yet? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, I'm still doing interviews, and I need to transcribe everything, and the transcriptions is taking ages, just like, <gasps> and she was, and people were like, you know, why don't you use, um, I can't remember, like, the name of the software. I was told various softwares that, yeah, yeah, yeah people use to transcribe interviews and I was like yeah I can use that but I still have to listen to it fully because it misunderstands and if I I know these people the AI doesn't know them so I know what their intonations were I know all the background I know certain things that the AI will never know so it didn't make any sense to use a software to transcribe the interviews because it would have missed loads of things that, you know, that we know just in terms of having had that relationship with people for 30 years. So that, that took ages. And I was like, oh, my God, am I going to actually finish this for the deadline? Because I gave them a deadline of December the 6th, um, December the 6th, twenty two. So when we went into January 23, it was like, I mean, I got the manuscript in, but I was ill and everything. I got COVID twice. I, like, <laughs> <laughs> there was one point where just 
getting towards the end near the deadline something weird happened I think it was a stress thing but I couldn't get out of bed my legs wouldn't work it was just like oh my god this is a nightmare I can't actually write this book and I was crying life gets in the way and work got in the way because I had imagined that I was going to have the luxury of lockdown to write in and have all this time and have people's 100% attention and all that went out of the window by January 2022 which was the start of the writing time. I had COVID December and January 22. So I wasn't actually physically able to start writing until February. So it's like, oh my God, this is actually a nightmare. And I, I, all the way through, I was wondering, you know, am I doing the right thing? Uh, Have I bitten off more than I can chew? And I had, you know, it is, if anyone even looks at my computer and sees how many words I've actually written in order to get. Well, that, I, actually, that was a question I had, right? Because it's it's 200 odd pages. Yeah. And it definitely could be five times longer, quite easy. It's just so much in there. Yeah. There's so many stories. There's such a, you know, um, a kind of rich layering of stuff. And, you know, it must have been really difficult to cut it down to 200, right? Yeah, it was. And But the nice thing was, I had a really good editor and this was my biggest worry in writing it was that I was going to get an editor who was going to come in and cut it down and make it not like me and make it not read like my story and make it not read like my words because I wrote every word I you know every single story theme chapter all of it has been conceptualized in my head and has been you know um, fashioned by my hand um, I've had three different keyboards on my laptop <laughs> <laughs> actually worn through it but I had an editor that actually understood and really was totally sympathetic to the way I write and the way I speak so when he edited the text, and there are swathes of text, there is so much missing, you know, there's been so much cut out of it. But he edited it in such a way that even I couldn't see where the cuts were. And I had to go back to various versions to see what had been cut out and I was like oh 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 that's missing (laughs) oh that person's missing so there was that was part of the awareness when I got up to the end of the chapter where I'm talking about how histories can be changed is that realizing that you know just on a technical level people can get cut out histories can get lost because they're not in the arc of the story so it it was a learning experience but a learning experience which also fed in to the findings of the book so it was nice you know i i realized from a personal level when i've been saying oh this person's not talked about me and I've not been in that book and it's so, you know, it's really bad of them and I've fallen out with people over this, fallen out with various people over this along the way. And right, then, sorry, if I can just interrupt you there, you, you talk about um, Peter Hook's book about the Hacienda, don't you? 
Yeah, 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 I do. Because that 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 is the one where, you know, he's talked about, um, he talks about flesh, but he doesn't mention me or Kath McDermott necessarily at all. And he doesn't really mention how good it was. And then when he went into that thing where he listed every night that had run at the Hacienda, he mentioned DJs that didn't play every month. You know, he mentions Luke Howard on practically every mention of Flesh. Luke didn't play every month, right? But I did. Right. It's so e- it's so easy to say that personally, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, and it I did take it personally for ages, which was why I spoke to Peter to get his take on how he'd written the book and to see whether it had been, you know, whether it had been actually a. Uh, uh, a conscious decision of his to cut that out or whether he just forgot or whether he just thought it wasn't part of the story. And, and, you know, it was interesting to have that discourse and that conversation with Peter. And it's funny having that conversation, our friendship has just gone like leaps and bounds since then. So, <laughs> right, his, It's um, been really nice doing it. The quote you have from him in there is some, it's something along the lines of, You've just got to remember that this is just one version of the truth, right? It's it's subjective. Exactly. It's his story. It's his story. And that also feeds into the foundation from the book that everybody's story is relevant because every single person in every country is contributing in some way, shape or form to history history is living history is happening in the present it doesn't happen in the past it happens in the present and then when it goes when the present goes into the past it becomes the history of the future like that you can get totally tripped out smoke a load of weed think about that phrase but that's the truth (laughs) (laughs) but it's interesting to realize then that we are all in some way, shape or form contributing to some facet of history. But from where each of us stands, it can be different. Yeah, absolutely. OK, so you actually um, open the book. Like the first page of the introduction is like an account of Giles Peterson telling you to write the book. But 10 years earlier, right? that's from 2011, I think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's correct. So how do you, um, well, I mean, in in that 10-year period, like, was there a, was it constantly there in your mind? I've always been writing. Right. I've always been writing, but one, I keep a diary. I've always kept a diary. Some, Some of them I've thrown away hundreds of diaries, hundreds burnt them, incinerated them, buried them, you know, whatever. But I always, I've always written. I don't necessarily write every day. I do write something every day, but not as long as I should. You know, they say you should really write an hour a day. I tend to go like, I maybe write an hour every two days, but I'm always thinking about things and writing the odd phrases down. And I read something the other day that said that writers are life vampires. That's okay. And it's true, because don't say anything around me that you don't want written down. 
my mum used to hate that about me when I was little because I've written since I've been very small and my mum would always say you talk too much because I'd put everything in a story for school and then the then the book would come back and the teacher would say oh Paulette said this today right and my mum would be like don't write about everything So I've always been that person that just observes. I'm very much an observer of life and I write things down. I've always written things down and I do still write every day. So when Giles said that to me, I had already been writing. You know, I had already been putting things down that I thought were interesting, stories that I thought were interesting to tell. But it's one thing writing, but getting somebody interested in that writing is actually the biggest part of the battle. So I've never really been able to get anybody interested because things in the world kind of had to change in order for the life I've lived to become more relevant. So, you know, it's an annoying thing, but I've had to wait quite a long time for the things that have happened for and to me to, or or to be able to shine a light on the things that have happened for and to me without feeling the fear of reprisal or, 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 you know, just not being able to work anymore. I don't have those same fears anymore. Maybe it's because I'm older. Um, maybe it's because the fucks I give are less. <laughs> Which yeah, does coincides with getting older as well, I've noticed <laughs> myself, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think it is something to do with getting older and also getting older and realising that what have you got to lose by saying those things. And, you know, I think also perhaps the recognition that it's it's actually useful for younger people as well to be able to read these kinds of stories yeah and that that is my you know my main motivation in doing all of this is I've got 12 nephews and nieces and I also now in in time I've got I think maybe six great nieces and nephews too so I can see a future for them or I want or wish for a future for them that is far easier than the one my mum had and the one that I've had. So I want them to feel like they can be strong at work. I want them to feel like they can articulate whatever's happening for them um, in a safe space at work without thinking like they're going to be sacked or they'll never work again. Or maybe those things just will not be happening for them if I am vocal about those things having happened for me and for those people who've come before me. So that that's why I tell the story is because it's like there are things that need to be said and, and for change to happen nobody can read your mind so until people start to make a noise about them or people start to be clear about what the boundaries are or should be then nothing will ever change absolutely okay i wanted to actually ask you about some stuff which you don't cover in the book which is your Mm. childhood and growing up because you you emerge (laughs) actually at age 24 already married yeah out of a shell (laughs) 
<laughs> like a weird Easter egg ticking thing. Yeah, where, where did you where did you grow up? I am Manchester born and bred. I was born in North Manchester General Hospital in 1966. I have a twin twin sister, which I mentioned in the book. Yeah. So I was born in Manchester, educated in Manchester, started off in North Manchester and then um, moved to Oxford for a little while while my mum did a degree there, came back from Oxford and moved to Fallowfield where I was brought up for most of my life. And I went to schools in Fallowfield and my grammar school was in Didsbury and my sixth form college was in Rusholme. And my university, where we pick up, my university was Manchester Polytechnic, which then became the Met. So I'm a Manchester girl. And all of my experiences, um, you know, from growing up, our house in Fallowfield backed onto the university playing fields and, and um, you know, musically in school I, I was taught to play the violin I passed my grade three when I was seven years old and um, played in an orchestra first violin in an orchestra for years until I started going to clubs and I thought this instrument doesn't make the sound <laughs> that I wanted to make because I was into post-punk and um, Sheffield electronic sound you know Cabaret Voltaire and it's like I'm never going to play Fad Gadget and Cabaret Voltaire on the violin. So let's sack this off and let's go clubbing and start smoking and doing all the wrong things. Um, but my family very much had that musical background. We were all taught to play instruments. I played violin, piano, whatever. You know, why don't I produce? Because I don't know. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I sang for years in bands before I became a DJ. Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And my mum's a singer and, you know, the family, my family have got a very deep musical history. My mum and dad were part owners in a nightclub for years and it's just all sorts of stuff. My brother was a DJ. So, they, they, like, we're a really musical family. So I didn't just suddenly pop out of the egg of, hey, I think I'm going to be a DJ. It came from, hey, um, my family are really musical. Um, I love music, all sorts of music, from jazz to gospel to, um, you know, Fad Gadget, Dead Kennedys, Killing Joke, David Bowie, Roxy Music, like 60s stuff. Sure. Beatles but um you know we've got a very musical I come from a very musically literate family yep. who are still you know at the age that I am who are still really into music who are still really into going going to, to gigs and discovering new music and sharing new music and that is the background that I come from and 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 I mean, it's quite amusing that I've got six sisters and one brother and we're all to a degree known around Manchester, but people don't have only just started to piece together because of things I've said in the press or, or whatever, that we're all in the same family. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> 
Where do you come in the... I'm the youngest, can't you tell? Hey, look at me. <laughs> right. It's like, no, because do you know what? Some things just actually, I've just had a light bulb moment. Because if you are the youngest in the family, that hidden history is written into your DNA. You always get forgotten. Like, I very much a loner from a, even though I had a twin, I've always been a loner. I've always been out there. I've always been the different one in the family. I've always been a bit the, you know, that my sisters call me the weirdo because I was into all the electronic stuff. And I've always been a bit geeky and hyper intelligent. (laughs) So I've always been a bit the odd one out. So, um, yeah, that's where I come in my family. And I think that also gave me a little bit of the push to do what I've done because I've always been different. So it didn't make any difference doing something that nobody else was doing or that I couldn't see anybody else doing because it's just like, well, I want to do it. So I'm going to crack on, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to try and connect some dots with a conversation I had with a guy called Gerald on the show a few months ago. As we were talking about him growing up in Manchester around this time, and obviously he, you know, had the big Acid House hit in '88. I'm guessing you guys must be around the same age, or or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know G very well. Yeah, yeah right. So <clears throat> I was asking. Well, I had a kind of long chat with him about the pre-Acid House Manchester scene. Yeah, and it sounds like this is this is where you kind of cut your teeth. Yeah, as a uh, yeah, as a, as a kind of nascent raver. So yeah, tell me tell me about. Um, like the first experiences of, of going to clubs and, you know, getting into music? It's interesting with me because I started going to clubs, I think, probably around 1980. Yeah. And, yeah, that would make me 14, 15. Yeah, that's correct. So I started off going to Pips in Manchester, which was playing the music that I really wanted to hear. So there were four rooms in there. There was a soul room, a Bowie room, a Roxy room, and a 60s room. And you could bounce between those rooms all night and hear the best of those genres. But in the Roxy room, it wasn't just Roxy Roxy music. So you had Dave Booth playing in the Roxy room and he was playing everything from Susie and the Banshees, Dead Kennedys, Southern Death Cult, um, bit of Rockabilly, King Kurt, um, The Cramps, that kind of thing, and Roxy music. But really the Roxy music you would hear in the Bowie room, which was where Alan Maskell was playing, and he would play... Roxy, Bowie, Gary Newman, um, Grace Jones, Simple Minds, um, Human League, uh, you know, just all sorts of, you know, the craft work he'd play. He, uh, I'm just trying to put a landscape together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is kind of what you would hear as the outsider music then the 60s room would be playing everything from uh you know 
Manfred Mann, the Beatles, um, Petula Clark. To I seem to remember hearing Downtown played at least once a night okay. in the 60s room. And it might also have been an end of the night record in the Bowie room. <laughs> it was just because you'd get this crossover of tunes that you'd hear in certain rooms that could that could work you know like a 60s or a 70s tune that could work in the 60s room would also work on the soul floor so you'd hear certain Motown tracks or chess cadet or that kind of thing played in both rooms so it was interesting and that was where my education really started musically and I don't think you could have that kind of club anymore because pe- people actually moved around the room. So you get the soul boys that would stand around the edge in the Bowie or the Roxy room watching all the punks with the big Mohicans or or all the Gary Newman lookalikes pretending they were Gary Newman when the song came on because that it was a different way of clubbing as well and it, it was a different way of listening to music and I think that's how I engage with people when I play records now is that I kind of get into embodying the record <laughs> and embodying the lyrics somehow while I'm behind the decks and it's not something I do as a pretend or 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 an act that's how I listen to music (laughs) it's funny so it was also based around dancing and I am a dancer before I'm anything else you know I, I I'm a music lover first and I'm a dancer second so um can I dance to it what do I do to this Am I dancing jazz? Am I dancing funk? Am I dancing like a robot? Am I, bri- you know, whatever? And um, yeah, it was all down to dancing. And then when Pips closed, it was like, oh, where now? So that was when I started going to Berlin on Deansgate, which was way smaller. It was only one room. So we were all together then. And there was any like the two DJs, Alan Maskell and Dave Booth, played on the on the indie night, and Colin Curtis did the soul night on the Wednesday. And you, you had to go to the different nights. Then you couldn't just go to one club on one night and get a feel for all of it. And um, I think my my clubbing will have been a bit different to G's. I think you're probably right. getting a different story from me then. Yeah, well, okay. Well, I'm just trying to figure it out, really, in my mind. So, yeah, go on. And um, other than that, I mean, Manchester in the 80s was very, uh, I mean, like everywhere, it was very wine bar It right. went had its wine bar phase. So there was, you know, <laughs> the Millionaire Club or there was Bavadage or there was, you know, my sister mentioned that club the other day and I nearly choked on my tongue. It was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, we had club names like that, you know, the faux French. Uh, I mean, it's just ridiculous, all chrome and mirrors and carpets that you weren't really dancing in, but you were drinking spritzers because it was fancy, you know. It's just right. like, oh, my God. And then you went in there to pull with your big brick mobile phone. Um <laughs> Yeah, and shoulder pads. There was a lot of shoulder pads and there were a lot of big earrings. 
but and that's really what Manchester was. Either you you were on the periphery and you were into soul or you were into indie, goth, punk, and those clubs were on the edge. And in the centre of town, it was very much um, chrome and mirrors and not very mixed and not very black. So the black experience... Well, yeah, that was actually... Yeah, that was going to be my next question because that was a, that was a kind of uh, a feature of the, the, the discussion I had with, um, with a guy called Gerald. Well, because you have to keep in mind what was happening sort of um, judicially as well because in the 80s, you've got the sus laws were really strong and we had Manchester had a very homophobic and a very racist chief of police and a very homophobic and a very racist police force who were just pulling in everybody at will and the thing with the sus laws meant that they didn't need a reason to do that yeah so they could pull you in just because they wanted to and aggress you just because they wanted to. And it, the centre of town wasn't very black or gay friendly. Right. It just wasn't. Sure. You were running a risk, really. So that's why a lot of the black music clubs were on the outside, like the Reno, the PSV, the Airdrie. They, were, they weren't in the centre of town. Because if we went into the centre, we ran the risk of getting stopped and searched and arrested. Right. Yeah, that's really interesting because yeah, that that was that did not come up in that previous conversation I had. That's interesting. So and also, it's 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 not just the stop and search. It's in terms of if you wanted to put on a club night in Manchester. Yeah. You have to think about it, and and if you kind of put this into your head that legally it was really hard for black people to get the authorization or the paperwork through to get a licensed club night going a lot of the music music nights that were famous for black music were run by white people and there is a reason there is like a legislative and judicial reason for that black people could not get past the either the city council or whoever it was that was signing the licenses for it we couldn't get the licenses yeah okay i mean that yeah that kind of tallies with my understanding of of the uk as a whole actually to be honest at that time but i think yeah manchester had a well it's everywhere i mean it it, it really was everywhere because like my my friend barney michael barnes winter will say you know he moved from bristol to manchester for that reason because he wanted to you know see if he could experience it a little bit easier right and friends of mine from london will say the same thing and even you know even up till now, even up until the north, even through the noughties, getting any licenses for club nights that played black music in London was almost impossible. You know, yeah, yeah, we've we've discussed that on the show before. It was absolutely shocking, actually. The um the, the notorious form that came in in the early two thousands to yeah. basically try and get rid of garage and grime nights. It's... Exactly, this is what I'm talking about. Yeah, shocking, really shocking. But I mean, okay, so what I wanted to uh, well, the question that I wanted to put to you actually was, um, uh, and yeah, coming out of that same conversation was the extent to which Acid House changed 
maybe if not changed, you know, the things that we've just, you know, the, the kind of institutional things we've just been talking about, but in terms of like changing the audience, um, was your experience of that kind of acid house period that the sort of segregation amongst the audience got less? It's a funny one for me, really, because I came off, kind of came in after that because I was married. Right, okay. So I didn't really get to experience clubbing for a couple of years, like the two crucial years. Oh, no, that's a shame, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> Just missed out the best bit. I missed the best bit because my husband didn't like going to clubs or didn't or and it wasn't just that he didn't like going to clubs we were in recording studios all the time I spent those two years writing songs and singing non-stop non-stop I was in the studio Uh, it, it wasn't that I wasn't doing anything but I was singing then what kind of stuff was the bands that that, that were the band in in question oh um <laughs> solely or funky or sure. I don't know bit contemporary pop okay I was just singing whatever I could was it any good it no <laughs> that's why I'm hedging um <laughs> no we were okay we were okay but you know there was an obvious reason why we didn't get signed (laughs) (laughs) you know we weren't brilliant we were just okay you know you know we were okay but I had a good voice I had a good voice until I decided I decided that it would be a good idea to ruin my voice so that I didn't have to write songs with my husband anymore (laughs) and that is no if there is any regret in my life and I haven't actually told this to anybody but if there's any regret in my life it is actually um actually consciously breaking my voice how did you do that uh over singing smoke just just doing everything wrong really doing everything I could possibly do wrong just to wow just to mess it up and I knew I'd done it because I felt it pop but uh, um, I mean, that says a lot, right? Yeah, it does. It does. And there's a phrase that I wrote uh, that didn't get, didn't actually get into the book because they thought it was a bit too harsh, and I had to totally rewrite the bit about my husband um, that a fox will chew its own foot off in a trap to get out of a trap. That's quite harsh, yeah. But it will, you know, if yeah, you're yeah. that desperate and you want to get out of a trap, oh, absolutely. you'll do whatever it takes to get out of it. And I did whatever it takes. No, absolutely. And, and ruining your voice intentionally, that is extreme. I mean, I can sing little bits, but I've not got the power and I've not got the range. So, you know, I wouldn't embarrass myself. And there was one thing in Paris when they did kind of tried to make me sing again and it was just so humiliating it was just the worst just absolutely the worst and I never ever want to be in that position again (laughs) I never want to be in that position again good lord no no thank you fair enough so I mean presumably that's that was the kind of precursor to where we where we start off in the book yeah yeah because I mean the thing is I sang in bands for years and I was a really good singer I know I was a good singer because I was getting a lot of work and doing a lot of backup vocals for people and you know whatever 
But what was happening was I'd do the rehearsals with the bands and it'd go really, really well. And then we'd get the gig and then I'd dress up. And whenever I'm in rehearsals or whenever I'm in my everyday, I have always been a bit of a B-girl, tracksuit bottoms, sweatshirt, baseball cap, you know, whatever. I'm always very dressed down. I don't have to dress up in the day. Why should I? But I'd dress up at night and then I'd get ready for the gig and people would look at me and go, she's not she's not a backup singer (laughs) and I get fired and I just was repeatedly getting fired from bands not because I wasn't any good but because I wasn't background I wasn't background enough and I was like providing visual competition for the lead singer you know they say never upstage the bride well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're <laughs> not doing your job in a band if you're upstage, upstaging the lead singer, right? I'm not really a backing singer, and I realised I wasn't really a backing singer. So when DJing came along, it was like, actually, this is fantastic yeah, right. <laughs> because I can be the engineer, I can be the creator of whatever I say, how I perform, I say what I look like I can determine what I play and how I sound like and how I engage with the crowd everything is down to me Mm. and nobody can fire me for being who I am people will hire me for being who I am so DJing for me was just this now world of I can perform in front of people for the rest of my entire life if I so see fit. Yeah. Because it's down to me what I sound like and what this person now is. So at what point did that become obvious to you? Like the DJ uh, per se, you know, at what point did that kind of vision become you know strangely it was the first gig I did at the number one and just simply because I played that gig on my own I did it from nine till two I'd never done it before I didn't know how to use the equipment um I didn't have any equipment at home I'd never been shown how to do it um and it could have been an absolute disaster really on paper it should have been a disaster but it wasn't and I played from nine till two and everybody enjoyed it nobody left people talked about it and on that night because I had such a rush I was playing music which I do at home all day I can listen to music and day can turn to night And I was doing it for people. I was sharing that with people. And I just thought it was fantastic. And I knew from that first gig that I wanted to do it again and that I was going to do it again. But I didn't, what I didn't see was that a career could be made out of it because I had lots of things going against me in terms of it being a career. People thought it was a hobby. Well, I think DJing as a career in that era, it wasn't really a thing, was it? It wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing even for men. So... <laughs> right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. So, you know, for a woman, 
you know, <laughs> even less of a thing. <laughs> it was like, uh, is she for real? And I was, yeah, I am for real. I am going to do this. I am going to take it seriously. I am going to pursue it and see how far I get with it. And I moved from Manchester to London to be a resident DJ every week at the Zap in Brighton, every Saturday night at the Zap in Brighton. I made that move. I went from the number one, never having DJed before, to the Hacienda for four and a half years to the Zap Club and moving to London. And it all happened really quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the flesh night before the Hacienda. Yeah. Um, can you, yeah, tell, tell me more about that, the night in particular, in detail, because it sounds really interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was nuts. Do you know, one of the things I remembered about it was that we used to change our clothes in the car park. Right. <laughs> That's how it was. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. That's the beginning of it. You'd get to um bridgewater street car park everybody be park up there there'd be a bit of a rave in the car park because people were changing out of their normal clothes into their let's go to a big gay party at the hacienda clothes some people walked in dressed like that some people did actually change in the car park um and then it was standing in the queue and he at the time, there were no noise limitations, so you'd feel there'd, there'd be a certain part where there's the loading area for the Hacienda, and that door would rattle. <laughs> it was great. If you were standing there, you'd just feel the zzz, 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 before you went in, which I I still, if ever I hear that noise of vibrating bass bins on metal or brick <laughs> or windows, it gives me a massive thrill I get something out of that I get excited by that I just I'm just like oh my god what's gonna happen yeah, next pure anticipation right? I love it I absolutely love it I'm still smiling now and I'm sure you can hear it coming through my voice because um that is the anticipation of what's gonna happen next who am I gonna see what am I gonna hear and in those days, we didn't have Spotify, we didn't have streaming services, not Mixcloud, not YouTube, not any of that. So if you heard a record that you liked, you had to remember it. You had to write it down on the back of a cigarette packet or a beer mat <laughs> that 
or a piece of tissue that hopefully would not go in the wash with your jeans and take that to your favorite record store to try and buy that tune or you'd have to sing it to (laughs) someone um now we don't have to sing anything to anyone you can shazam it you know, you can shazam most things, but in those days you had to remember how it went. <laughs> um, and then you get into the Hacienda and it'd just be this eye-popping mass of, I mean, this is only on the flesh night because the other nights weren't like that. The other nights were very, you know, it it was the factory space, you know, it was it was the concrete, it was the metal. But there was some... yeah. Could you sorry if I could just interrupt you? Could you describe the venue? I mean, I never went there, but I'm sure lots of people listening to this never. You went never there. went there. Do you know one of the things that I was thinking this morning that really annoys me is when people, um, people and certain DJs have done it, and I won't say who, but they will say that they have worked at the Hacienda just because they've been there one right, okay. or twice. <laughs> but they've never played there. And it's like, God, how can you do that? How can you just claim that part of history for yourself when you never, ever played there? It's like, baffles me that anyone would do that. But when you walked into the Hacienda, first of all, you had like the cashier's thing on the right-hand side, and then you'd walk through the door the cloakroom in the kitchen was to your left and the dance floor was to your right. And then you had lots of booths around the dance floor set off where there were certain booths where you knew you didn't sit there because that's where the drug dealers sat. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you did. <laughs> maybe you did. I don't know. And then... On the other side of the dance floor, you had the toilets, which were invariably flooded. Uh, (laughs) The ceiling um, at various times of the night was dripping sweat (laughs) because there was no air conditioning. How high was the ceiling? It was mad high because, you know, it was was an old shipyard or something. So it had a really high ceiling. Um, and then you've got all the pillars and the girders and the chevrons and all of that. So it was eye-popping anyway. It was so unlike any other club in Manchester because... Yeah, definitely not like those chrome and glass ones. Right? Exactly. This is what people have to understand, that the alternative to the Hacienda was so safe. And so twee, like, and also so white. It was really, like, squeakily um, whitewashed Um, and very much for, you know, like your Radio 1. Right. um, What was that? DJ Simon Mayo, like <laughs> you know, right. that vibe, yes. that vibe. Yes, um, he used to, or or who was the one that had that love 
song slot on Radio 1. I can't remember what his name was, but it was very like that. So that was the alternative. So when you walked into Hacienda, you knew like the music was just going to be completely different and it was completely different. And on the flesh night, the people were different because the Hacienda had never had a gay night in the nine years of operation. And for for the eighth to ninth year, it had been closed because there'd been so much trouble and gangs and deaths and you name it. So Presumably, one, though, if I can just interrupt, sure. there must have been a fairly large gay contingent to the regular crowd. Is that, is that no. fair? No, not at not all. Really. Really? No. really? Wow. Not really. Okay. Not really. That surprises me. Not really, which was why it was so massive when Lucy Sher did her lesbian of uh, the the summer of lesbian love, and she got a thousand lesbians to go to the hacienda. It was full, and it, it was like, where did all these people come from? Right. Wow. Okay. And it was that that led to Paul Cons and Lucy joining forces because Paul Cons had tried to do a gay night at the hacienda previously called gay monday and he couldn't get more than 40 people wow so it was you know gay people did go don't get me wrong but it wasn't mixed like it wasn't the mix that you would imagine it to be um flesh turned that completely on its head made it an out and out gay space for gay people to come and be come as they were, come as you are, and um, really made a point of saying to straight people, (laughs) it's like positive discrimination here. This is for dykes, queers, and their friends. So if you're not a friend, if you're not an ally, you're not coming in. Right. And As it should be. Yeah, but in doing that, it kind of did the opposite because it made it a place where straight people for the first time had wanted to go to a gay club because up until then, and I will contextualize it as well, the 90s, we've come off the back of the AIDS crisis. We've also come off the back of Section 28 where you you couldn't speak about anything same sex in the media, in any in education you couldn't talk about anything gay anything gay you were a pariah aids was a gay disease if you touched anyone gay you could catch aids yep you know gay was being gay was the biggest stigma or the biggest one of the biggest government-led um kind of witch hunts (laughs) in the 90s yeah. So to create a gay night that suddenly made straight people want to go was like... Yeah, that's a difficult trick to pull off, right? Yeah. Yeah. To the point where people would kiss their best mate in the queue to prove that they were gay, even if they <laughs> right, weren't, okay. right. to get yeah, in. Yeah. And this is, this is a truth. Yes. Yeah, okay. People would kiss their best mate just to get in and have an experience of what flesh was like. And that should give you a a very strong and clear benchmark or idea 
of what flesh was like. Anything goes. Yeah, this is fascinating because I mean, I I didn't. I'm a I'm uh, I guess ten or so years younger, so I didn't start going out until ninety four, ninety five ish. So I I just kind of always assumed that the kind of gay angle and you know having read about all the you know the the, the big kind of classic clubs in in New York and all the rest of it, I just assumed that in the UK that the gay crowd had always been sort of overtly part of the whole thing. But it actually makes complete sense in that context that people wouldn't have, or gay people wouldn't have felt comfortable. Well, think about it. Maybe even if you think of Block 9, that wasn't established in a festival until 2007, 2008. Sure, 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 sure. Um, Festivals didn't have gay tents. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did but, they? but it was definitely, I, it was definitely something which is well. I mean, to to put it in my own context, like the first clubs, the first club that I went to regularly as a sort of six, fifteen, sixteen year old was Heaven in London. Yeah, so yeah, I used to play there. Amazing. I guess I was just sort of like catapulted straight in, straight into it. And I guess that kind of informed my assumptions about this whole thing. Were you going to Digweed Bed Bedrock or no? I used to go yeah. to. I went to the Saturday night actually, which is which was the K night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, cool. But also I went to Megatriplis, which is this kind of side trance thing. Yes, I went to Megatriplis yeah, yeah, yeah. as well. Did you go to Mrs. Woods then? Were you listening to Jane? I was into that. I don't I don't know don't know her, but I I know of her. Yeah, I know that stuff for sure. The kind of like high energy type, um, new energy. Type she had the main floor in heaven. I used to really like that stuff. And I used to go there a lot. And Blue Peter. And... That was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff. Yeah. React Records and that kind of thing. That was, yeah, not quite my first kind of way in but um, you know the, uh, amongst my first experiences on proper dance floors was was yeah was that and yeah. it was that music because the music was better and the DJs were better <laughs> yeah 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 no but but just go that's what I was saying I think that that must have just kind of like colored my assumptions about this whole thing but what you were just saying there about you know how, the, how there wasn't an over kind of gay contingent like you said I'm sure there were gay people there but like not kind of visually there yeah. at the early high yeah, the parties that yeah it, it makes total sense yeah. yeah I mean it wasn't the given but we had our own night they gave us our own night and and I think why it gets left out of this story is because it was successful yeah flesh kept the hacienda running because it made money what happened when they established Flesh, first of all, it brought a load of tourism to Manchester because the Hacienda suddenly became mediatized and for a cooler reason right. than guns and drugs. Sure. Manchester became Gaychester. That was Paul Conn's media spin. Um, the first publicity posters for it was It's Queer Up North. So we were flying in the face of the homophobic press saying, you know, we're out, we're proud, we're here, and this is the place where you can come wherever you are in the world, Liverpool, Leeds, Sheffield, London, America, France, because eventually we had people coming from all over the world, you know, and it was like, this is the place to go. Manchester, you can be gay in Manchester, you know, to the point where 
Russell T. Davis will openly I mean he 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 was a regular at Flesh, so he will say that his experiences there definitely coloured the way he wrote Queer as Folk. Mm. So it was a really it was at that time when we were breaking out of that shell of um the stigma of gayness. It was suddenly okay to be one young and two out and openly gay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, even if you think of how Paradise Fat, how Paradise Factory developed and how Mantos developed, when Peter, Peter Dalton put Mantos on Canal Street, he was breaking so many taboos because he, he made a glass fronted bar with tables on the outside. Right. Up until he did that, gay clubs were in basements, hidden away. Nobody knew where they were. Nobody could look at us inside. Nobody could look at how we were socializing with each other. It was taboo. Nobody wanted to know. It wasn't cool. It was, you know, and when he did that, putting it as a shop window, it says, if you are like this, come to us. And this is how we are like, this This is who we are for anybody that wants yeah. to see it. No, absolutely. I mean, I certainly remember the kind of, um, like the media atmosphere of a time and, you know, and obviously the Tory government, but like, you know, the Murdoch, the Murdoch press. Think about what Margaret Thatcher said. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was definitely a, it was a hostile environment, you know, to use a... Completely, use a completely. Term. And yet in that hostile environment, we flew in the face of, all of it and did it anyway yeah so what kind of music got played there so tim lennox was playing all the house yeah uh dave kendrick was playing all the house um kath mcdermott was playing house electro upstairs on the main floor anything from chicago detroit inner city Derek may um dsk you name it, you'd have to ask them specifically what their playlists were. And I was downstairs in the Gay Trader, which was renamed the Pussy Parlour, playing my bits of house, which I was playing everything, Frankie Knuckles, Larry Heard, um, all sorts, really. Marshall Jefferson, Byron Stingley, Ten City, um, yeah, that kind of house, David Morales. And then I was playing funk, soul, disco, whatever took my fancy. So anything from Sylvester to Diana Ross to Gladys Knight to Gwen McRae, uh, you know, whatever kept the party going. But I was playing more soulful, more black music in the second room. And it was amazing. And some people didn't even know there was a second room because they never, ever got there. And other people only went to the second room because that's all they wanted to hear. So it was just an amazing, just an amazing environment to experience music and people and a culture at its absolute essence. It was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it does sound pretty awesome. Okay, so I want to I want to jump to 
Paris, which is a bit of a jump, but yeah, I a mean, huge jump, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, just, just, um, you know, looking at the clock. But I, mean, I, I know, to, I know. <laughs> I, I wanted to go. I wanted to cover Paris because, I mean, you literally say that it could be a book in of itself. Yeah, totally. But it doesn't get a lot of coverage. Actually, it's a few pages. No, so presumably, for this lots was... of reasons. For lots of reasons. Again, it goes into that thing about what you can write about in a book and what you can't, and what might get blocked and what I could possibly, possibly, um, you know, litigation is a big word and I wanted <laughs> right, my book okay. to come out. Right. So there, there had to be certain executive decisions made. I mean, I have told certain stories in there that I'm like, oh, you know, when the book comes out and people actually read it, are they going to come at me for it? But, um, you know, that's the risk. It was true. So, pff come at me <laughs> you know you kind of have to think like um and that is why I didn't really go deep into the French story and there's also an element with the French story which is why French history doesn't get told because the English press doesn't really cover anywhere French or German or Italian speaking or or doesn't include that as part of the electronic music history. We can't integrate it because it's in a different language. They have different clubs. They have a different circuit all through the year. And it kind of goes out of sync. So you have to tell those stories separately and if you only tell those stories separately then it only appeals to the people that are in that circle Mm. or understand that circuit and it narrows the readership of your book massively because like I wrote it and they were like but this isn't really you know it's interesting and it's great but who in England will have stood in that queue for mixed club. Oh, I mean, as fr- that really frustrates me, you know, because this, this is the exact thing that I would personally really like to read because, I mean, my experience of, you know, of running campaigns, you know, record campaigns, is that France is very much its own territory. And oh, you have totally, to, yes. You have to hire French PR specifically and you've got to really treat it as a separate thing. Oh, it is. And the same is, the same is true for Germany, but actually Germany has been covered quite well in the press and in print because they speak english right absolutely yeah so there's there are books and some really great resources actually about the german club scene particularly the berlin club scene but i mean but overall too but the same is definitely not true for yeah but i mean this is why a lot of english people move to berlin because they can still speak the language and there's still that crossover where they've not fully dropped out of the loop you know they've not they've not dropped off the face of the earth from moving there there's still that communication there's still somehow a two-way communication there but when I moved to France I really cut off my roots by doing it and I didn't realize that I'd done it but I didn't get any coverage in the UK press for for the 10 years that I was in France, which is bonkers 
because they are 10 of the most successful years of my DJ life. Right. I was going to say, this is arguably, you know, the, the highlight of your career by the sound of things. Right? I was playing to 30,000 people regularly. Like I was playing to thousands of people. I was playing with Bob Sinclair, David Getter, And I say this and people, it's just like going over their heads like it's nothing. I'm like, this isn't nothing. I've, I was playing with someone who has been the number one DJ in the world three times. And I was playing on that bill. The only woman on that bill. Right. <laughs> exactly. So just let me let me ask you though, why was Par- why was it Paris in the first place? Why Paris? It felt like it. Just literally this sounds good because i mean you say that you know, talk to martin tolveg and he was just like don't 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 move yeah he said don't do it i think it was a funny one that really because he did he said he won't remember obviously but he said don't do it and i was hell-bent on doing it i'd met someone as well he probably said that if i can just interrupt you he probably said that for the reasons that you've just given Right. He probably yes. thought it's going to be Yes. Bad. And he was probably absolutely right. Looking back right. on it, he's probably absolutely right. Don't do it. It's not happening. And, and knowing the cycles and knowing what happened for me, yes, he was probably at that stage where I was in 2012, might have been at that stage where I met Marta in 2002 or 2001, 2002, whenever it was. Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird one really, because I'd, I'd met someone first of all, and I thought, oh, you know, is this going to be a serious relationship? And I've been playing in Paris a lot and playing in France a lot with the ministry, um, because I was one of their international residents. So I was traveling all around France and meeting people, Montpellier, Nice, you name it. And I just really liked it. And I thought, <laughs> this is funny, because I thought, oh, I can I can move to France. I can learn to speak French, because you do, you think, I can learn to speak French, and it's going to be very easy. And then I got there, and I made the decision. I was selling my flat, and I thought, do I buy another flat in London, or do I move to Paris and try and make a go of this relationship first of all and then maybe you know maybe the work will follow but the relationship was the first and I like um I wish I'd seen the Brini Brown uh is it Brene Brown or Brini Brown I can't remember how to pronounce the name I've probably made this sound like a right whack northerner but um she says Never move for the relationship. Always move for yourself. Always move for what you want and then everything else will follow. And I wish I'd heard that first because <laughs> it would have probably made a huge difference. But, but having said that, it wasn't a disaster me moving, even though the relationship was eventually a disaster. It didn't last for very long at all. But work-wise it was the best thing to do because I landed somewhere where there was nobody like me and it just left it just 
like the beginning when I'd started DJing, it just left the field wide open for me to be this thing that people had never seen before, playing music that people hadn't heard before, that they wanted. And I could be this very different me in French terms, but, you know, people have been seeing me play in the UK for years. So, they, you know, I wasn't doing anything necessarily different. I was just different for there. And I landed at, landed at a time where the music was just going to suddenly explode. And it did. And it was fantastic for years. It was absolutely fantastic. I made pots of money and spent it on whack men and... <laughs> expensive handbags <laughs> what better way to spend lots of money yeah on shit relationships and great clothes and shoes <laughs> <laughs> i wish i'd invested a bit of it though i wish i'd been a bit smarter but you know you know when you're young you think it's gonna last forever and when you're older you're like no let's squirrel it away <laughs> right i actually had uh Chloe Tevenan on the show talking about her residency at Le Pulp and various yeah. other things around this kind of time. Did you did you go down there? Yeah, no, the Pulp was just before I landed it. I think it kind of finished before, just before I got there. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, Le Pulp is one of the biggest stories, like in in French electronic music history. It's like yeah. the equivalent of the Rex, the Pulp. Yeah, and really significant in the the story of, I guess, gay culture in gay history. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a you know lesbian vibe, like yeah. big, 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 and um, yeah, I didn't get to go to the pub really. It was before my time. So what was going on in Paris that was in cl clubs wise? I mean, and music wise. When I got there. Yeah. Yeah. It was, the Queen was really a, still a cool spot. It, it hadn't quite got to the VIP um, bottle service level yet. I experienced that around 2010. Um, so Queen was cool. I went in on the underground, so Red Light and Mix Club, and it was vibrant. You know, there was the... Oh, God, I can't even remember the names of the clubs now because I've not had to think about it for so long. But there was there was a really strong underground scene of... Do you know what I remember, actually, the first time I went to the mix club, I could not get in. <laughs> <laughs> so it made me laugh months later when I was given the residency and I thought they're gonna have to let this black person in <laughs> actually the same happened to be at Bergheim the first time I was to try to get into Bergheim and get in and then like six months later they asked me to play yeah like, hey, it's yeah, like yeah. right just watch <laughs> me walk through this door <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's funny that when you get that turnaround um, I'm still kind of struggling with the names of the clubs. I can see where they are. Like, um, there's one on Montparnasse, which still, I think, does really deep underground soulful nights. And then you've got places like the Flesh Door and, um, oh, it begins with 
Oh, where I met Giles. Well, like my brain has gone completely dead for this French thing now. Okay. Well, um, tell me just in a sort of like um, <laughs> in a few sentences, how you go from turning up there, you know, coals basically to that, you know, mega stage, super successful DJ Paulette mania that you describe i just played a massive party where i played really well really? and i okay. played okay. alongside etienne de crazy and bob sinclair i played in the middle of them and it was for it was for a charity event so solid days is like the equivalent of Ter- terence higgins trust and right. um act up it's like a blend of act up and like all the french gay um, I'm thinking half in French, half in English now, but it's like the AIDS organisations. Right. So it was a big street party that had been arranged by Solidays. They know, they also do a festival as well, Solidays. Um, you can kind of look it up. I think they're still doing things once a year mm. on the – oh, I can't remember which part. <laughs> My brain's gone. I've got brain fog. <laughs> But um, I did their party and they booked me and I just thought it was a club night, an ordinary club night. And when I went to this site, they were like, oh, we need to give you a, you know, we'll put you in a car to get you to the lorries. I was like, lorries? (laughs) (laughs) What? And then thanking my lucky stars that had taken CDs and not vinyl because it's like, oh, my God, we're going to be moving. Right. Like, this is like, I hadn't factored that in at all. And I didn't really know what I got myself into. And then I got a police escort from the place where we got the accreditation to the place where the um, route was going to begin. And this police escort was mad and it was like a guided tour of Paris and all on the wrong side of the streets with the blue lights going. And it was like, Oh my God, what am I doing? (laughs) Like suddenly I just realized like how big this thing was. And then I saw like all the barriers and the people and it's like thousands of people and people walking out of every Metro station and joining the route. And when I got, when they put me on the the lorry to start the route, and I saw Etienne, first of all, so he was playing the first record, he was playing the first set. And I was like, shit, Uh, how did I get here? How did, you know, because I've landed as something different and... I had a radio show on Radio FJ by then and people were starting to talk about me. And I was this English resident from the Ministry of Sound that was now living in Paris that was playing music that people wanted to hear. And I just played an incredible set. And there was a moment when I, I just really remember it. We were the, the lorry was turning left onto the Pont Neuf off the road that runs along the Seine so we're turning left onto the Pont Neuf and I just played um, Mason's Exceder and it was 
I just received it. It wasn't the Princess Superstar version yet at all. Like no one had ever heard this track before. And I, I'd played it at home before I came out and thought, I wonder if that's going to work. <laughs> yeah. And I just played it and it the streets erupted. I have never seen a reaction like that. I had never seen a reaction to music like that before I played that party. You couldn't even see the streets for people. Like the 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 pavements, the 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 you couldn't see the pavement. People were like standing on top of walls, on top of phone boxes. It was just absolute madness. And I played that set in the middle of the day with the sunshine. <laughs> I mean, just everything went right for it. And the, the, the records, the yeah. stars aligned. I just played a set which just went like bang, bang, bang. And people were screaming. And after then, that was it. Like, I worked solidly from that point until I left, kind of. Um, and I travelled and toured around France for nearly nine years. It was crazy, you know. That there were two sets, actually, that I played. There was the one that I played after my dad died at, at Mix Move in Mix Club that people still remember and they will talk to me now about 2005 Solid Days, 2008 Mix Move. Mm. Yeah. Again, playing with Bob Sinclair, Joachim Garod, David Guetta. Yeah. I played with all the big boys and I just held my own like i i could play with them and it didn't cause disruption in the night i i was as good as them and joe will still say very publicly that i am one of his favorite djs yeah okay um now timing i've got, I've got a uh i've got so many things to ask you you're gonna have to edit all this do you enjoy doing that <laughs> I mean, to, to be honest, they mostly just go out as they are to us. That's okay. But it's just in terms of like, I just want to cover as much stuff as, you know, sure. all the stuff I want to cover. Let me, um, in fact, let me ask you about this. Because um, I, I want to go back actually to the 90s and talk about uh, New Econ Soul and yeah. Represent and all that stuff. But before we do that, let me ask you about Kana culture, because this is something that I really want to make sure we get, we get done, because there's a whole chapter on it, basically. and. Um, I guess the question I wanted to ask to kick off was that I talk, to what extent do you think that Kana culture still exists? Uh, it does still exist, just different drugs. Right. Different okay. drugs, um, a different vibe. But it's not celebrated in quite the same way as you as you describe no, in, in the book. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, magazines don't put it on the cover um anymore it's not constant i mean even though people still do it and believe me they do really still do it but it's not um it's not fated in the same way it's not celebrated in the same way that it was in the 90s and noughties at all why do you think that is 
because it's bad. It's really bad for you. <laughs> well, I mean, it was bad <laughs> and for you really back then. It's really bad for business. Too. It's really bad for business, and you can't have people. You know, Park Life every year has this running battle with the councils and the press because people come down on you like a ton of bricks if you even get somebody that's taken to hospital after your event. Sure. Let alone if they don't come back from why they're taken to hospital. You know, um, it is so easy to close a club down now that to have it closed down for a drug offence and that is just like, you know, really? Do we want to do that? So I think it's not encouraged you know, it's not openly encouraged, even though we know people do it. And Sasha Lord will say, you know, we know people do it. We would rather people did it in a safe way. You know, that is the message today. Get your drugs tested is the message today. Not take as many drugs as you can and be caner of the year. You know, and, and actually, you know, we're talking about this on the day that Annie Nightingale has died. So, you know, I mention her in the book and say, you know, she got the Cane of the Year Award from Music Magazine. At the age of 61. At the age of 61, yeah. And, you know, it's not celebrated in that way anymore. We just can't because, you know, clubs just can't and magazines just can't do that because... I mean, you're absolutely right to say that, but I wonder if even if... Even if they could. Yeah, but it still exists. I'm saying it still exists. It is still there, but we can't publicise it in the way that magazines did. Sure. Okay, so, I mean... You can't put an ecstasy tablet on the front of Mixmag now. No, I know. I mean, that was crazy to me at the time, to be honest. I mean, Mitsubishi just became like a major selling point for magazines, didn't they? Just the coverage of the quality of drugs. Yeah, it's like put a line on the front. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess it shifted units, right? (laughs) Fair enough. Enough. And how many people did a line on a cover with a line on it? You and know, it's so like, many. <laughs> but um, yeah, you can't really do that now. Okay, so I mean, my the next question was going to be like, you've got some great stories about this stuff in the book. Yeah. There's a particularly good one about taking an E just before going on stage for a New Year's <laughs> Eve set. Um, but do, I mean, do you have? I mean, your memories of that stuff over the the course of. I guess, yeah, like you say, it's mostly the the 90s and 2000s. Are they positive men memories generally? Yeah, yeah, of course they are. Of course they are. Most of of them are. The the memories that weren't positive didn't make it to the book. Right. So um, there were certain things that I couldn't share that I, I really wanted to share, but then it would be open to, um, possible litigation and also having the book stopped and I thought I don't want that to become the story Mm. of the book and I also want the book to come out so I would rather save that story for another book or another time or figure out another way of telling that story but there were some you know there were very much some bad experiences sure um but I haven't shared those necessarily in the book I would like to recount the good experiences, but say that, you know, the message that I give is that as much as I know there were good experiences, 
that drugs didn't necessarily work in a good way for me in the end. And I had to stop it. I just chose to stop it because it's just like, you know, I think I don't really need it. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, that's true for most people, right? <laughs> you know, it's fun you just realise you don't really need it, and you just turn into this big, you know, obnoxious knob. You know, cocaine turns people into an obnoxious knob. Ketamine turns people into a stumbling zombie. It's like none of these are club drugs, you know. And where is the really, really lovely ecstasy that we used to have? It doesn't exist anymore. So if it's not making me rub somebody's velvet trousers, I'm not interested. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Absolutely fair enough. So, okay. I mean, also in that chapter, you, I mean, there's, there's a fair bit about the the kind of lifestyle of being a DJ, I suppose, and the kind of stuff which is not glamorous, and yeah, the perceptions of people. Um, you know, when you when you tell someone you're a DJ, and they kind of assume that you, you know, fly around in a private jet and doing you know, nothing. Spend... Right, right, right. <laughs> Exactly. Doing nothing but partying and then going on a stage and then partying some more and then going on a stage and then partying some more. And I wanted to um, tell people that, yeah, you know, there is an element of that. Of course there is. You know, you look at David Getter and, and, um, you know, Steve Aoki and, you know, even Amelie Lenz or or Peggy Goo on stage and they're having a great time. You know, there's a bottle of champagnes popping all over the place. So, yeah, there is an element of pie there. But in order to get to there, <laughs> there's a lot of graph that goes <laughs> You know, there's a lot of graph that goes in before they get on that stage and have that party. You know, there's a lot of listening to music. There's a lot of traveling. You know, the traveling, the traveling, the traveling is what, you know. Yeah, that's the worst bit. It really takes it out of you. And even if you are in business class, first class, whatever lounges it is, you're still on the same plane. (laughs) It's still taking you those many hours to get from Paris to New York or Miami. It's still taking you those same hours to get from London to Bali or Manchester to Bali. You know, we can go to all these locations, but we have to travel to get there. And that time is mind numbing and it goes wrong if there's a strike. It goes wrong if there's bad weather. But people only experience those kind of things if they're going on holiday. But DJ's life is that that is always, all the time. You are traveling always, all the time. So if there's a train strike, a coach strike, whatever, floods, fire floods, pestilence, you name it. And I know people will say, oh, yeah, poor you. But it takes its toll on the body and it takes its toll on the mind. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes a really strong person to, you know, deal with all of that coming at you and then step out on a stage and be brilliant and entertain people for two hours when they've just been stuck on a plane for three hours. (laughs) When they've got in, they've not had anything to eat, the hotel room service is closed, you know, they can't change the clothes, so they're stuck in the clothes that they've travelled in. You know, all of that, and I know you'll have experienced it yourself many times, 
it makes a difference to how you perform and you have to figure out you know no matter what the world throws at you you have to figure out how you can tap into your creativity and be like and absolutely nail it from your first record yeah it's really hard isn't it it's a skill like it is is is. a real job it is a skill it is an art and I will bang the drum loudly for that and say that you know Rishi Sunak said when we when we went into lockdown oh retrain it's like we are training every day this job isn't a joke it's a proper skill it's a craft it is that every time you step out onto a stage every time you touch the decks or your laptop or you make a tune or whatever it is a skill it's a craft it's not something that you want to retrain from because that is the training yeah it's as much a musical instrument as someone who picks up a bassoon or a fucking tuba (laughs) no i totally agree with you let me let me ask you though Going back to what we were saying about how, you know, when you started, like DJing wasn't really seen, well, no one really thought of DJing as a career and and now it very much is. Do you think that people have a better understanding of what it is now? And, yeah, and when I, say, I do. When I say what it is, I mean, including all that stuff you just described, do you think people understand that? I do think people have a better understanding of it, but I think that's more because now there's a different, it's a different generation of DJs and producers who can be a lot more open and engage with sharing what goes in to you know what what goes into what they do and how they do you know so you can watch an Eliza Rose um, video talking about how she made this track with Calvin Harris you can see what went into it she you know she itemizes the moments like first it was the email then she thought it was a joke then they you know that then they ping-ponged ideas between each other online and then they went into the studio and then it it was created and then they made the video and and, and you can see the process and that's why I think it was in it is important to kind of unveil the process demystify the actual process of it Mm. because I think that makes it a lot more interesting to people rather than thinking it's a you know it's a big joke or something it's like actually this is something I could learn to do yeah no absolutely it totally is and you know I, I think the um the whole industry really not just DJ but the whole music industry has been kind of demystified like that um, certainly the pr- production and all the you know the technical stuff that goes into that has been yeah in in lots of ways not in all the ways not in all the ways that say who is making the tunes and who isn't but, sure, you know. sure. <laughs> that's definitely some true. people do but some people are 100 percent honest and not everyone is 100% oh i mean very honest, few people in this but... industry are 100 percent honest let's face it <laughs> <laughs> anyway listen i wanted to go back as i mentioned i want to talk about uh you being a press agent because i mean yeah. you did some amazing stuff as a press agent i still am i'm doing my own press well, there you go <laughs> right to a degree yeah yeah um once a pr always a pr yeah so mercury records right and you know all, all the stuff we're talking loud and all that kind of stuff right yeah 
Yeah, Mercury was, I mean, Mercury was that moment for me, like when Eliza Rose said she received that email from Calvin Harris and she thought it was spam and she thought it was a joke. When I received two phone calls, one from Eddie Gordon and one from Giles Peterson at home saying, come in and interview for this job. I thought it was a joke. I deleted it off my answer phone because I thought, this isn't very funny. Um, <laughs> you know, ha-ha, very funny, <laughs> delete, <laughs> delete. And then I got the calls again. And I was like, oh, maybe it wasn't a joke. <laughs> and then they asked me to call them in the office and, you know, give me a brief about what the job was and who I would be working for. And I'd never done PR before. I mean, let's face it, like I'd been studying for my degree up until June 94. Mm. You know, I'd finished my finals in June, July 94. And I hadn't worked in an office since 1990 (laughs) and I'd certainly never worked for the music industry for a record label I was a copywriter before I went to do my degree so I've always written but I've you know and I've written for newspapers and stuff like that but I'd never worked for a record label before and I certainly didn't know any PRs and I didn't even know it was a thing or a job and nobody in my family knew anything about it so it's like why are they asking me (laughs) why do they think I can do this but you know they were right (laughs) because I could (laughs) (laughs) and I'm really good at it so um I mean, for the beginning, I wasn't really good at it. I was hopeless, but I learned how to do it very, very quickly. And I also had, you know, the absolute honour and the luck of working at a record company and with two, three, four labels, because I was covering Fontana, Def Jam, manifesto and talking loud at a time when um mercury records took on def jam and refreshed their roster and so i worked with chuck d ll cool j foxy brown warren g you know all of those boys method man were all on my roster and then talking loud was new reconsole Ronnie Sides and represent Four Hero. I was just finishing working with Nicolette. I had Terry Callier, United Future Organization, a um, few other people I'll remember. And Manifesto, the first record I PR'd to the press was Josh Wink's High State of Consciousness, which went into the chart. So, and then, you know, on Manifesto, I had David Morales, I had Byron Stingley, I had Gusto, I had Green, I had all sorts. But it was just at that time where dance music was starting to chart and sell and then go on to compilation albums. So I I also made the f- first compilation album for Polygram TV, Club Mix 96. 
I mixed it, didn't get any credit for it, got paid for it, got a gold record for it because it sold over 100,000 copies. So it was just like at that time when it was just so vibrant and I was... I just really enjoyed working with all the people I was working with. Charles was, you know, just, you know, Charles is a massive hero to me, full stop. I've been playing Talking Loud records, Galliano, um, you know, there are albums on Talking Loud that were just, you know, the Young Disciples is like up there on my albums of a lifetime it's in my time capsule that album so I really they were labels that I really respected they were artists that I really respected and that I understood and I had the honor of promoting them to the press when they couldn't get on the radio and they couldn't get in the tv sure right yeah so it was down to me really to push their names out into areas that would get them the attention that would then unlock the key for them getting radio play and for them getting TV appearances. And I just really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was great fun. Um, there were various ways that I took the complete piss. <laughs> and there were various ways that I was working really hard and really late nights and, <clears throat> you know, meltdown left, right and centre because it was hard work. It was proper graft and I didn't really have a budget. I didn't really have an expense account. So I was like working. I just made sure I worked and got to know the people that really loved that music the way that I did and loved and understood the music the way that I did. And I just got results. I got results, you know, Ronnie Size eventually made it to the Mercury Music Prize and they won. Yeah, I had uh, Crust on the show, actually. We talked about that. Yeah, but I bet you they didn't say who PRs. <laughs> he did not mention that, no. It's true. Surprise! <laughs> they didn't get there by okay accident. i gotta i gotta ask you though there's, there's a story that i really want you to tell because i mean I've, you say you really enjoyed it but i mean i always i always quite enjoy a, a bad news story so tell me about going to new york to do the new york and soul oh that was yeah, yeah please please tell that story uh, that only oh my god <laughs> could anything have gone more wrong <laughs> gone. <laughs> oh my god this is like the big trigger story for me <laughs> Because it was at that point where I was just starting to do bigger things and understanding that, you know, I could offer magazines a story that was a bit different. So let's go and cover the New Eureka Soul, the start of the New Eureka Soul story by taking a load of journalists like two journalists and two photographers from two key magazines. So I can't really name the magazines because that's where it gets into litigation. Right. <laughs> well, did I name the magazine? I think you... Mm, in the book. I've got it in front of me. I don't think I did name the magazine. Um, but it was two key ones, one style magazine, one music magazine. And... 
I took the journalists out there to cover the beginning of the new Reconsole story and, and you know, interview Louis and Kenny and uh, in place and see how they worked and all of that, just, just to get a bit of extra mileage, a bit of extra traction, more space in the magazine. And obviously by treating your journalists, your photographers to a really nice trip, you're hoping that you will get, you know, something you know, really complimentary written about it. However, (laughs) you know, as long as it took me to persuade the magazines to do this feature and then get the record company to agree the budget to take the people out there. um, When we got to New York, it was really, really cold and I just was not prepared for the weather or maybe it wasn't cold, but I was already coming down with whatever I got. Right. <laughs> and and I just didn't feel right. I was just freezing cold all the time. And on the first day when we went to see Louie and Kenny in their studio, in the Masters at Work studios in New York, mm. um, they were really, really busy. And I could tell when we walked in the office, it was like, they're not into this. <laughs> okay. They're really not into this. And I was, I, I left the photographers and the journalists in, in one corner of the room to set up and do whatever, you know, they needed to do, get comfortable, have a look around. And I went to talk to Louie and Kenny and they were like, uh we need to cut this we're not really you know we've not really got the time to do it and I was like well how much time do you have and they said well you know we can give you an hour we can give you an hour two hours maximum and I've just flown four people over to New York to do a feature and take photos that we could have actually done on the phone from London and I was just like oh my god I'm gonna get my ass kicked so hard for this like this is just and I tried to negotiate it but they were just like we can't do it we're really really busy we need to be in the studio to do whatever I think they had a remix or or something though they had good reason to not be there but it was just really bad timing because they'd agreed to do this and we'd flown all the way from London to do it, and they were now saying no. And they, it, it was a hard no. Right. <laughs> there was no persuading them otherwise. So then I've got to go to the journalists and photographers and say, look, sorry, um, we've not got the time that was planned. You've not got half a day per magazine each to do text and half a day to do pictures. We've got two hours for two magazines to do text pictures which everyone was pissed off about but it's like well you know we'll just try and get what we can and then try and get some color around it by staying in New York so we went out for dinner we went we went to Roger Sanchez's studio and then we went to hear him do we went for dinner and then we went to hear him play later on and I just did not feel right it was just like no something's going on and the next day one of the photographers was like 
I need, oh my God, I've got a four o'clock and it's nearly four o'clock. Um, <clears throat> he was like, I've got, um, the next day I was just like, I just don't really feel well. And I went shopping to get some warmer clothes because I just didn't have anything that was going to keeping me warm. And when I got back to the hotel, I was like coughing up blood. So I was like, this is Ugh. This isn't looking good. good. So I called the doctors. Doctor came. You've got strep throat, bronchitis. You now need to stay in quarantine. Here's your bill. <laughs> um, <laughs> stay in bed. And I'm like, well, I can't really stay in bed because I've, I've got these people. And he's like, no, 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 you cannot leave this room. Whatever, you've got to stay in this room. So the journalists were coming and saying, you know, what do we do? And I'm like, I don't know. I can't do anything with you. I need to stay in bed. But I didn't really tell any of them that I was ill. So there was this misunderstanding that I was just being this diva that wanted to stay in bed. So then one of the photographers asked to change her fly and Mercury Records rejected it and said they wouldn't pay for the changes and that we had to stick with everything. So it was just all a big mess. And when we got back to the UK, nobody was speaking to me. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Wow. And then when the magazine feature ran, um, the Style magazine ran it as half a column <laughs> with a tiny little picture. Oh. And the dance magazine did somewhat better. I think they still might have even given them the cover. Okay. Oh, so it wasn't a complete wasted trip then? Um, <laughs> nearly. Well, it wasn't a very complimentary article though, because oh, they right. didn't get that much. They didn't really get that much out of them. But either it was a cover or it was a really good inside picture. It might have been a really good feature picture and not the cover. It was supposed to have been the cover. And I got hauled over the coals for it. And none of my, hardly any of my expenses were paid. And I had to pay all the medical bills and everything. Oh, it was no. just a big mess. What a nightmare. So, I mean, sorry, sorry for making you tell that story. I just, I. No, <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Because I, you know, it's one of those stories that needs to be told. And I, I read something the other day which said, oh, people don't really want to hear about the machinations of the job. People only want to see the good results. I, but I think true. that's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's true. I think it's important to say how these things work. You know, to say that if you have um, a PR budget and you're trying to get people into magazines, just know what you're up against because they are there are people and record labels that have way more money than you that are paying for covers that are paying for space in magazines so if you don't have the money and you can't bargain like that then it also explains why certain artists do not get the press sure you need to know that people need to know that that it's not this magic thing that we're all entitled to the same thing because we're not so quite a big theme of the book that actually I feel I, I, we should have talked about already, especially given the time constraints, but I mean, the sure. gender inequality and, obviously, yeah. and racial inequality too, but I think gender, gender inequality is something which is, a, um, well, in fact, no, they're, they're both really central themes to it actually. But I mean, you have a, 
a whole chapter is came <laughs> out ask questions, right? So that's a very specific focus. I wanted to um, let me. Ask... And it's a chapter I fought hard to keep. Really? Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's I fought hard to keep and fought hard to keep the shape of it. Okay, this this is that's very interesting. But let, let me ask you something though specifically from the from Annie Mac's introduction actually, because there's, there's a line in there where she says change has begun, but the pace is glacial. Do you think it is glacial? I'm not sure because to me, I think there's been really fundamental change in the last, say, seven or eight years. What, that you can see us? <laughs> yeah, but that, but that, that, that is a big change, right? I think that there's, there's a, there has been a, a very significant shift, I think, in the way the industry works and the way um, the priority which is but given to... But we were to... always there. You can, all, you can only just see us now, but we're still not in the same positions of power. We're still not earning the same money. You know, even though the awareness is higher, and yes, it definitely is, this is what... I think this is what Annie means when the pace is glacial because it's like there's a superficial idea that... Oh my God, there's so much, so many more women coming through. And isn't this amazing? And isn't this equal? But then you'll look at the lineups for all the festivals. And this happened last year. And I know it's going to happen again. They're still heavily, 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 you know, they are not 50 50 on the male female at all. Not even anywhere close, you know. And, and when you look at the back, line for the women that are doing sound lights tech you name it yeah i think you're absolutely right you will be hard pressed to find that even it's not even you we you can see more of us and that is true and thank you for that you know it's true i am benefiting from it you know people have taken the kind of shackles off and we're able to do things with a little more ease that's true but it doesn't mean that we are um anywhere near the same you know that we are getting anywhere near the same breaks as our equivalent as our male equivalent with regards to the back end stuff i definitely think that um like there is been almost no movement on the and it's not just um you know people on the work working like you say working the soundboard or whatever but i think like the yeah and try finding a black female promoter and try finding a black male promoter that does it you know i can name one you know two actually ad and ibiza and anton stevens in sure (laughs) in manchester you know, you'd be hard pressed to find that balance because most of the promoters and organizers and booking agents and managers are white, straight, male. I mean, I do benefit from it. So I'm not going in hard on anybody, but I am aware that the, there is no balance. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, I, I'm, I broadly, I think, agree with you. I'm, I, I still think that there has been a quite a significant shift though i mean and, and maybe that's uh maybe that's limited to something which is vi- what we're kind of superficially visible right i mean is is that more of a fair comment do you think like yeah 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 don't get me wrong of course there has been a shift of course you know but 
you know, you can still look at the DJ Top 100 and see that even if there's 20 women in the Top 100, there are 80 men. I mean, I often think, well, I mean, it's an obvious point to point out, actually, but I mean, the participation of women reflects that to a certain extent. And, you know, if there is a an argument in favour of kind of an arbitrary 50-50 kind of quota system it's to encourage more women and girls to get into DJ. yeah 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 absolutely absolutely that and also you know i i I do say that you've got to give people the break somebody's got to take a risk nobody's taking massive risks with people it's like oh you, you know i understand bums on seats certain people will you know whether they play or not if you put their name on a flyer they're going to get thousands of people through the door thousands more than i will or you know certain other djs that i can name you know i understand that i'm not completely naive to it but then if you go down that line and say yeah but they can they're the only ones that can put the bums on the seats they've had to build up to that they've had a break that has enabled them to build up to that so you've got to give that same break give that same per same person's equivalent sure that brush stroke of luck that enables them to then join that boys club that commands the thousands of bums on seats but if you don't give somebody that break in the first place you'll never know and it is just blocked with seeing the same names time and time and time and time and time again guys don't get the breaks i mean i'm sure you i'm sure guys talk between themselves and say why is it always the same name well, that's what i was going to say i think like i think an observation would a fair observation would be that there's been a, a small number of female djs who've been added to that list of people who just get booked again and again and again and yeah just, and then it makes it look like it's fair. <laughs> sure, sure. okay well let, let me let me ask you a separate question then, which which is along the same lines but you you, you mentioned that um well okay so you make the observation that female djs who came through in i think you're talking about the 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 2000s when you say this but female djs who fit this is a quote fit an editorial style and agenda right how much of the the kind of new wave of female djs do you think are fitting a particular editorial style and agenda maybe it's a different kind of style and agenda it's a different kind of style and a different kind of agenda but um what i think less so now you know because but I do still see the there is a female techno DJ look. There is a... I mean, that's true for men as well, though, right? It just is. And there's a male techno DJ look. You know, the black, why they call it business techno, black t-shirt, black trousers, tattoos all over the place, you know, sure. whatever the hairstyle. And generally, you know, the duo of bros. But... <laughs> Let's just break it down. So there is a look, male and female, that gets the traction, that gets more traction than certain other looks Mm -hmm. and certain other genders and certain other sexualities. Yeah. It's starting to change, certainly. 
And I love what is happening when I see I Jordan commanding massive stages. Thank you very much. Because the message that sends out is way stronger than looking at Dimitri Vegas and like Mike for me. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, yes, I suppose. I mean, I absolutely, I mean, I agree with you to a point, but I think that um, even there. And that's not that I don't like those two guys. It's just the like, the message that communicates to a crowd that needs to be more open and accepting is like, we're all in this together. Not it's just this very straight white duo of bros. I mean, I think you could make the argument though that, um, you know, using I Jordan as an example, that is a style and some would say agenda as well. But not one been... that everybody can absolutely copy. It's just cheap. I mean, give them, give them a chance. I mean, Day. <laughs> I mean, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, I guess what I'm getting at, I guess what I'm getting at though, is that I think that like image now, I think is probably more important than it's ever been in the life of a DJ. How's that a style that somebody can copy? We've watched somebody, um, you know, we have, who's made open their trans journey. It's not something that people can copy. It's something that people can feel all right about if they are experiencing them, then it, it, it for themselves. Oh, I mean, they can't copy the, like the experience of it, but they can copy the style and the look and the, you know, the whole, all the rest of it. Slightly different on the, the agenda and press coverage and all of that. And, and the look that will go in a magazine. I mean, there are, there are, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with this, but there are lots of people who would say that it's a, a a very specific style and agenda. Well, maybe they'd be wrong, but I mean, there's there are people who would say that. Yeah. I would have to go against them and be that person that says, no. Yeah, I mean, I'd probably agree with you. In all <laughs> yeah, there's a trans story there that you're missing, I think, um, that kind of changes the energy on that slightly, but, you know. Sure. Not even slightly, massively. But I, I personally love to see his story and have loved to see that change because it's happened while the journey from growing to from a newbie producer to a stadium filling dj producer that transition has happened before our eyes and he's been very open about it and i think that's fantastic sure yeah okay um, I think we're we're out of time, aren't we? If we run out of time, we've got like six minutes. How many more questions? Got loads. <laughs> yeah. Let, um, me, let, let me just ask you. Yeah, I've got a an easy, well, maybe not an easy one, but a nice, neat final one. What is the single biggest change as a DJ between me, when your first your first DJ gig and your last one? What's the single biggest change? Would you say confidence? Because in that first gig, I didn't know lots of things. I still don't know lots of things. I can still learn loads about how to use my equipment and I can still learn loads about how to entertain people. 
but I'm confident enough in my skills that I um, can do that in any room. So I know I can play a really good DJ set. If they want me to play in Glitterbox at Disco, I know I can play that set and I can play it really well and I can nail it and I can fill a room and people will be happy. I know I can play a Hacienda set, straight house, down the line. I can play that set and I can make that room absolutely bounce. And I know I can play hard, twisted, techie as much as I like. I know I can play a back-to-back with the Blessed Madonna because I've done it. So that there is a lot more confidence. And actually that back-to-back with Maria was fantastic because she's a really great person to be in the booth with. Sure. She's very, like, there's no sort of, she's just really open and accepting and enthusiastic to let somebody shine beside her. Mm. So it was a really, I mean, the experience of that, it took me days to come down from that set (laughs) (laughs) because it was such a fantastic experience just playing in the booth and doing my thing next to somebody who is doing her thing, but we were doing that thing together and it was a totally live set. None of it was planned. We hadn't talked to each other about what particular sets or tracks or or what vibe. It was just, I will follow. And I, I said to Maria, you start and I will follow. And that's how we played it. And we just vibed off each other for the, the however long we had. I think we had three hours between us. And it was incredible. And I think that is the difference is, I mean, I suffer from anxiety really, really badly. And I was nearly sick in a bucket before I played that set. So don't get me wrong, I still get anxious. <laughs> but when I walked into the booth, I was confident. And that is the difference from when I started. And I didn't really know how it was going to go. Now I can walk into a room and I know how it's going to go because I, I don't plan a set. I don't write it down and say, First, I'm going to play that, and then I'm going to play that. I've never done that, but I'm confident enough to know I can walk into any room I'm booked in and play a great set. Yeah. And that's without any amount of arrogance. So, you know, whether certain people enjoy that, you know, each their own, you know, one man's meat's another man's poison, take it, take it, shake it. I don't care what you do with it, but if you enjoy it, stay in the room. If you don't enjoy it, there's many other DJs you can follow. I won't contest anybody's opinion in that way, but I know for me that when I walk into a room, I know what I'm doing. And then in the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of winging it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not winging it anymore. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Nice one. Well, listen, Paulette, has been great. Thanks so much for your time. It's been awesome. Oh, you're very welcome. I mean, I, I know we could probably talk for another four hours, but, um, you know, it was funny. I looked at um, somebody's comment about the book, Damien Morgan, 
I met him through BIM and he uh, he just ran this little post on his Facebook saying how we'd met and how he's really looking forward to the book. And he'd read this excerpt that's run in um, Resident Advisor yesterday or the day before. And he made this comment saying that she, like the first time we met that it was through talking, he got me to do a panel and he, he put in brackets and she can talk yeah that was dj paulette what an interesting conversation i have to say i really really enjoyed talking to her we could have gone on much much longer but we ran out of time she's doing the rounds doing the interview rounds which i guess you have to do when you have a book out right it must be overwhelming actually doing the proper promo for a book I suppose it's similar to doing an album, but I've some, for some reason I think it's probably more for a book, probably. Anyway, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. Great to have her on, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did too. Right, okay, I already mentioned Patreon. You can also support the show via one-off donation, scubaofficial.io slash support to do that. People do do that. So if you're wondering how you could, you know, financially contribute to the show without actually signing up, you can do that there with a credit card or PayPal or whatever. That would be nice. And yeah, follow the Spotify playlist and join us on the Discord if you've got anything to say. com slash Discord. Right, I'm out. I will see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of a Not A Diamond podcast. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.